It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Victor Frankl, Holocaust survivor, once said, We are no longer able to change when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com or our social media channels. Download some after-episode extras, such as our thorough CQ Rewind show notes and our bonus Bible study questions available on our individual episode pages. And look for new videos for all ages every week at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what's on the table today? Well, Rick, our question is, should the coronavirus change my Christianity? And our theme text is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Okay, should the coronavirus change my Christianity? The COVID-19 pandemic continues to wreak havoc. The virus itself is bad enough, for, but for most of us, the havoc comes from what's been put in place to keep it from spreading. Jobs have been lost, social, religious, and family gatherings are all on hold, and we're supposed to just stay home. It feels like we've had enough. Boredom, restlessness, anxiety, and depression are becoming our daily companions. Our personal desperation will likely continue to increase as there's no clear-cut pathway yet revealed to end this chapter of life. So what do we do? As Christians, how do we manage the rules that hinder our worship, the overabundance of editorialized information, the isolation, the anxiety, and the fear that drag on? So coming up in today's podcast... I want to be all done. That's what my grandson used to say when he was about four years old and didn't want to eat any more dinner. Well, we all want to be all done. In segment two, it's going to help us finish what has been started by giving us a powerful example of thriving, thriving in isolation. What's it like for a senior citizen who's in that high-risk category to have all of this panic and need for isolation? We're actually going to talk to a fellow Christian in that situation in segment three. Does all of this make you feel like burnout is creeping up in a whole different way? Well, in segment four, we're going to bring back Hannah, our medical professional, for some concrete insight and suggestions on coping. And finally, why? Why does God permit so much dysfunction? Segment 5 directly addresses this. But first, how are Christians supposed to act and respond regarding governmental guidelines? Let's take a few steps back and put all these things in order so we can have a plan and work that plan. Okay, we want to have a plan, we want to work the plan, we want to be good Christians in a really tough time. So we brought Julie back with us. You know, Julie, you are normally our on-the-street reporter, but now you're the in-the-house observer, I think, right? Uh, sure, <laughs> whatever you'd like to call me. Um, so 
so Jonathan, Rick called me and he said he wanted to do a podcast about the coronavirus, but without really talking about the coronavirus. What? And I was intrigued because I'm tired of hearing about the virus and I've spent way too much time thinking about toilet paper. <laughs> so for this first segment about our should the coronavirus change my Christianity, we wanted to pull from the headlines and talk about how we as Christians should conduct ourselves. Many churchgoers in the United States and around the world are up in arms because gun stores and liquor stores are deemed essential businesses during the lockdown, but churches are locked out from physically meeting because of the pandemic. And some clergy, well, they've disobeyed these orders and they claim a higher authority of God. For example, you may have seen in the news, there's a Louisiana church pastor who ignored orders to physically meet. And while they have the ability to live stream, he says the word of God commands us to assemble together. And, you know, he's right. Hebrews 10, 25 and other scriptures do tell us this, but some are calling this a persecution of the faith. Well, I, I was wondering, could this complaining be because many churches are run like businesses? Uh, are they afraid that they're going to go under? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, in fact, that same pastor just, I think it was just today, um, sent out a word that he wants everyone to send the stimulus checks that they received to him because it's getting kind of slim over there. But let's take a look at this. Some claim religious freedom based in part on a really important set of scriptures, Acts five twenty-seven to 29. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And the high priest told Peter in this verse, let me repeat it, you will have filled Jerusalem with your teachings and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Rick, I can't believe the high priest's words. Um, Jesus' blood was upon them. Uh, did they forget they yelled with the mob, crucify him. May his blood be upon us and our children. You know, that's found in Matthew 27, 25. Yeah, you know, they, they, there, was a, there was a hypocrisy there that is palpable in in peter's response is uh, look we have to obey god rather than men and and just want to settle the matter as briefly as as i can in terms of churches and so forth look let's grow up folks okay this idea of well we're commanded to meet together of course we are commanded to meet together should we meet together yes except when we endanger the lives of others by simply meeting and if we, as Christians, can't get that straight, I pity us. I pity us as a movement, and we are misrepresenting the goodness and the mercy and, and the love of God through Christ by saying, well, it's all about meeting. It's not. What the Apostle Peter is talking about is witnessing to others the Word of God. It's not about meeting so we get built up. That's not the point. So, folks, you know, please, please. When, 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 when the rules are saying, hey, stay away from one another, as Christians, let's follow those. Let's be an example and find ways to let our light shine. We're going to get into that as we, as we go further. 
Well, it's interesting because Peter here said we must obey God rather than men. But my question is, does he contradict himself when he instructs us in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one unto authority or governors as set by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So now you've got this scripture on submitting to those in authority. And the Apostle Paul also weighs in on this in Romans 13, 1 through 7. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For the rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. And uh, Daniel was a great example of following this. He was subject to kings and faithfully served God without compromise. You know, and, and that's such an important factor, faithfully serving God without compromise and working within the confines of what we're able to work within. There's something beautiful about being able to do that and still let your light shine. And we've got to find that balance. And that's one of the things we're striving for in today's episode. So, Jonathan, let's fig- uh, finish up these verses in Romans 13. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of good, God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. You know, and it says the rulers are servants of God. It doesn't mean that God has has drafted them to do his will. What it means is the rulers are in place by God's overall design so we can function in whatever the circumstances are that we're supposed to grow through. So let's, let's keep that in, in, in order. So now, Julie, before we, we try to harmonize these, we want to learn more about the Roman governmental environment that the apostles were under. So let's get some background going back to the time of the earliest church and see where that brings us. So for that kind of thing, I go to my friend, Anne, who is a geek, if you will, about early church history, specifically the first through the third centuries. And I asked her about the environment of the early church under Roman rule. And she told me the early church was often persecuted for roughly three centuries. Being a Christian could equate to execution. But why? I mean, the early church was a law abiding church and there's little, if anything, that could be interpreted to promote civil unrest in the New Testament. So why were at least the first two centuries of this tiny little religion called Christianity so rife with martyrdom? And we're going to narrate Anne's words in the next few sound bites. And I think Satan wanted to extinguish Christians who were considered spiritual Israel, just like he's been trying to destroy natural Israel, who are still God's chosen people. So we, we've got this sense of there's, there's a lot of, lot of forces at work here. So let's go to that, that uh, first soundbite that Julie's talking about, about the history of the Christian church. The early church was radical, 
radical culturally and radical in its mission. In fact, if it hadn't been so radical and zealous, its small numbers wouldn't have survived unto 313 AD when the Edict of Milan was passed, ending lawful persecution of the church. Now, Christianity does sort of start off as a clustered and primarily Jewish apocalyptic group that offended the Jewish community for its espousal of Christ, but also the Romans for its refusal to participate in common civic ceremonials that involve pagan worship. And because the pagan gods were a huge part of everyday Roman life, this was offensive enough to warrant persecution from the government. Moreover, the mission of the early church was kingdom-oriented, and as mentioned previously, the early church was radical. Their persistence in a message of morality in preparation for the new order was noted by the Roman authorities who, for the most part, regarded Christians as a general nuisance. But this continued preaching of subordinates to a spiritual order rather than to an earthly one aggravated the state, made the church easy scapegoats, and it should also be said that the early church welcomed this persecution as it meant they were not living like the pagans. Big point about not living like the pagans around them. They were living a different kind of life. They had a different uh, focus to their lives. They were about the kingdom. They were about the gospel. They were about the preaching, not about themselves. And I think that's a, a good place for us to start. And they weren't about themselves, but more so they weren't about the normal things, collecting right. wealth, collecting power. Um, you know, they didn't build these giant churches um, it, it, at this, these early stages and monuments to themselves and to their God. It was, it was completely different. But that would soon change in the fourth century. So you want to go on to that next sound? Please. Then? Yes. Okay. Let me get this together here and so now the fourth century changes history of the christian church a quick glimpse into the lifestyle of first through third century christians is that they were pacifists separatists feared prosperity valued modesty reviled almost every form of roman entertainment from feasting to theater they met in homes and did not own church property nor pay the clergy in fact much of what the early church considered foundational to the faith is absent in practice from the modern Christian church. And this will all begin under Constantine, when Christianity becomes the religion of the emperor and the official faith of the Roman Empire. And pagan temples are converted into church property. And the formerly heretical concept of paying clergy leads to state-sponsored salaries. As if paganism hadn't slowly been creeping into the church doctrines as more and more Gentiles entered the faith, it will now completely envelop the church during the 4th century, and all that will be left of the early Christian practices is held by small fringe groups who fight to survive against the orthodoxy throughout the remainder of Christian history. So Christianity wasn't meant to be mainstream. It never meant to govern nations or inspire revolutions. Christianity is radical just in its nature, its lifestyle, its practices, not because it advocates rebellion against the government. And an actual passion for God and the pursuit of holiness kept the church alive through the onslaught, onslaught of civil and opposing religious regimes. That's something that we need to keep in mind. It wasn't to rebel against the government. 
And also in the fourth century, it was easy for organized Christians to use mind control because people did not have Bibles and most could not read. At that point in time, the church shifted to buildings and not the people. How sad. And, and a lot of church doctrine ended up going down a road that was fear-oriented rather than gospel-oriented. And the fear that it was preached that, that really began to develop at those times is nothing like the true gospel. So, you know, we, we are told to pray for those in authority. And again, we're looking back at church history to get a grip on, okay, if we go back to the earliest church, how should we be in relation to that? Shouldn't we be trying to emulate what they started, not what how things became. So to, being told to pray for those in authority, Jonathan, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for the kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. A tranquil and quiet life. This, this freedom from governmental tyranny is not for the sake of our own prosperity, but rather so that we are free to teach and hear the gospel message. It's not about what I can get. It's about what I can be a conduit to give in terms of God's will and God's way. So, you know, Rick, earlier you already said quite vehemently that, <laughs> yes, we're to obey God, but we're also to obey the laws of the land. But what do you think about, should our Christianity be changed by the coronavirus when some of these pastors, to get around this, they would have uh, parishioners drive up in cars and speak with a bullhorn? And so no one was in danger, and yet they were still getting fined and ticketed. What do you think about that? That, I think, is a whole different story. When, when you are obeying the laws, the, the, the requirements, and staying away from everybody else, I clap and say, what great creativity in wanting to get together to worship. I think that's a wonderful thing. Now, it's a whole different issue as to why they're be, being given a hard time for that, but in my mind, that is being incredibly respectful of keeping the distance necessary. So, yeah, to me, that, that's really, really what it boils down to. And both you and Jonathan are both pastors in, with your own congregations. Are you online? Yes. Jonathan, you guys are doing... Yes, we're online on Zoom. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we, we do the same thing. So it's a matter of being together, but not being in the same room. And we can still have wonderful fellowship. It really comes down to putting yourself in a position to be a little bit creative, to be protective of others, and to worship God at the same time. So, we now know what the early church did and did not do. This makes me think, how do I fit into that mold? What early Christian examples do we have to help our faith have a solid foundation in hard times? If you love our podcast, show us some love on social media. Search for our handle at CQ Bible Podcast, or just search for Christian Questions on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and Twitter. Now back to our discussion. There is one dramatic New Testament example of handling hardship that stands out. The Apostle Paul was a bundle of endless energy and spent decades going from place to place to preach and set up churches to follow Christ. Some of his most notable work came from times of imprisonment. And you think about the Apostle Paul and the immense energy 
that he had and the commission to open up and the gospel in all of these places, and yet he spent years, years in a prison-like environment and did some wonderful things there. Julie, let, let's go to um, uh, ChristianConnect.com to get some background on the Apostle Paul's prison letters, Paul's Roman imprisonment. Paul wrote the books of Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians during his first imprisonment in Rome. The Lord Jesus brought Paul to Rome to complete the mission strategy that Jesus gave to his disciples just before his ascension into heaven. In Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. With the coming of Paul to Rome, the gospel was brought from the Jewish capital of Jerusalem in the east to the Gentile capital of the world in Rome in the west. The Lord himself had told Paul in Acts 23, 11, continue to be courageous, for as you testified these things about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So we've got the, we've, we've got the Apostle Paul putting thing, being given this incredible commission of what he was supposed to do, and yet he ends up in prison. And so this gives us a sense of this isolation. So to get us started, we're going we're gonna to be dealing with some foundation principles that the apostle teaches us from prison. But first, Jonathan, you have a story that we want to drop into this, this segment about dealing with isolation. Yes, uh, our cousin Lisa is a community nurse, and she shared her experience with us. She states, in all my years of nursing, I never thought I'd be calling people to tell them they have tested positive for one of the worst viruses since the Spanish flu. My first weeks were so tough because I just didn't know how to provide the support and answers they needed. There just wasn't enough definitive knowledge on this pandemic. I came home and cried every night. Okay, so we're going to develop that story as we go through these foundation principles from the Apostle Paul, all from his prison writings. There are seven points that we want to make in this segment. Julie, what's the first one? Frame your context as from God through Christ. Okay, simple. Frame your context as from God through Christ. Was Paul a prisoner of Rome? You'd say, well, of course, but not by his own account. Paul used the following phrase— and we're going to hear what it is many times in his prison letters. Jonathan uh, Philemon. 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 See, I can never say that right. I apologize, but I, <laughs> I have a good heart, okay? Philemon, <laughs> chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our uh, beloved brother, Philemon. and our fellow worker. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, so, so Jonathan, before we get to the next piece of Lisa's story. Here's the thing. He calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ, but he's a prisoner of Rome, but he doesn't see himself that way. He's calling himself a prisoner of Jesus. Folks, understand his context for his imprisonment was for the sake of Christ not being held by some country. That is a powerful, powerful way to look at being isolated. Do what Paul did. Jonathan, let's go back to Lisa's story. I heard a comment in Bible study that had an enormously positive impact for me. This is a time to let our light shine. I went back into work that Monday, said a prayer, and began a whole different approach. I provided the plan of action to keep them safe and let people know I'm there for them and they can call me anytime. 
just providing that important link, just as Christ does for us, had more of an impact than I imagined. Many people recovered completely, and on my last call to release them from isolation, they expressed how much appreciation they had for the support from my team. We all need that link to know we are not alone in a difficult situation. It was about reaching out to say, we've got you and you're not alone. You know, so she said she had a paradigm shift. She decided I can use this as an opportunity. And interestingly, our second foundation principle, Julie, is what? Use your circumstances to be a beacon of light of Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul did in prison. Philippians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have more courage to speak the word of God without fear. See, they have more courage than they had before because he's in prison. Who's a prisoner of? Christ. He saw it. He said, look, I'm, I'm letting my light shine. Do, do, what, do what Paul did. Julie? Paul was imprisoned, but, you know, even under normal circumstances, we all are in one way or another. You know, how often can we do what we really want to do? We all have economic or physical or social or family restraints. And Paul's incredible effectiveness and spirituality when he was in prison should be a lesson. We can't use the excuse that we can't do what we want to because Paul did great things while in chains, and we also can. You know, do what the Apostle Paul did when he was in prison. So let's move on to the third foundation principle. Julie, what is it? Be profoundly prayerful one for another. Profoundly, not just pray, be profoundly prayerful one for another. Uh, a couple of verses from Colossians, Jonathan, verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and then chapter 4, verse 2. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And in Colossians 4, 2, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. See, when he talks about devoting yourself to prayer, these are not just, this is not lip service from the apostle. This is how he's living every day while he's most likely chained to a Roman guard every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's most likely chained to somebody else, and this is what he's telling us to do, to be prayerful. Jonathan, let's wrap up Lisa's story. Having to trace and connect with the people who have been in contact with the positive cases is difficult. They would need to quarantine for 14 days to see if they contracted this horrific virus. They feel vulnerable, like a sitting duck. They are concerned when they have exposed their family. People get frustrated with the person who contracted the virus. Others are angry with themselves, and most are just angry about the entire situation. Okay, so, you know, she she had, she frontline was dealing with this and some really wonderful observations of being able to be a light in a very hard and difficult, difficult situation. And that really actually brings us to our fourth foundation principle, Julie, what is it? 
focus on others, deeply encourage their preparations to be strong in Christ. You know, and that's what Lisa did. She focused on others and how she could encourage and help them. Again, another prison letter, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Okay, so what we have now is this, this principle of being deeply encouraging. Now, Paul is saying, put on the armor of God. That's what we should be doing for others, helping others to be and to do the kinds of things that the Apostle Paul encouraged them, helping others to be armed because they're fighting a difficult, tough, tough circumstance. So let's move a little bit further. Um, the fifth foundation principle from the Apostle Paul's uh, prison letters, and, and, and folks, these are there's, we're going through seven points. There's many, many more than seven. These are just seven that we picked out because he is, he, is, he is so wise in the years that he was in prison. Julie, what's the fifth point? Live your circumstances with freedom in Christ, even if you are in chains. Simple. Freedom in Christ, even if you're in chains, even if you're isolated, freedom in Christ. Colossians 1, 11 to 14, Jonathan. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now think about this. The Apostle Paul is saying he's been transformed from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and he's sitting in chains, but he's transformed anyway. That's the example. That's how we need to look at our own isolation and difficulty. Uh, Trisha's come up. Trisha's my wife. She's our program observer, and she has some uh, observations, I think, for us. Trish? Well, I just wanted to add uh, in this discussion for myself, um, one of the terms that I would use is uprooted. And I was looking through some things I had, and I found my notes on program uh, 1094. It's called, How Do You Handle Being Uprooted in Life? And this has been really helpful for me because I'll admit, I have not handled this as well as I could. I find this very, um, it throws me off balance in work, in life. I feel like my work experience is upside down backwards most of the time. So I just wanted to share um, a couple of the thoughts from this program. Again, it's 1094. It was in um, 2019 called How Do You Handle Being Uprooted in Life? Um, The first one is it's really no fun to be uprooted, especially when you have nothing to say about it. When When uprooted, we normally ask, what does God want from me? Instead, let us ask, what does God want for me? And the second one is, um, even dire circumstances can bring unexpected opportunity while bringing out the best in us as long as we maintain our highest focus. And then the third comment is, with focus... Long, lonely conditions can bring profound and godly results. So this is very helpful for me. And between this, this program here, and I want to re-listen to this one 
on being uprooted in life to help me get my balance. I think this will be a big help. All right. So thank you for that. And going back to something from the past, you take the principles. Look, Christian principles always apply. Let's just look for them and continue to apply them in our present circumstances. Thanks, Trish, for bringing back those thoughts from uh, being uprooted, uh, 1094, episode 1094. Uh, Let's get on to point number, the foundation principle number six. Julie, what is it? Be self-sacrificing on behalf of others to accomplish the highest right thing. So Philemon, chapter one, verses nine through 13, Jonathan. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, which I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment, for the gospel. Okay, self-sacrificing on behalf of others. The Apostle Paul didn't have much, and yet he's sending back his, his, this, this fellow Christian to Philemon because he knew it was the right thing to do. Paul didn't have a lot of fellowship, and yet he sacrificed for someone else. Folks, do what Paul did when you have that isolation facing you. And finally, Julie, our seventh foundation principle. Be willing to pass on the mantle of responsibility to those who are able. And let's take a look at Paul in prison just before his death. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Second Timothy is really his, his farewell address, if you will. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with great patience and instruction. And Paul never lost his confidence in God or Jesus. And I think this is something that is very inspirational to me during this topsy-turvy time. His last, his closing words, 2 Timothy 4.18, even though he's in a Roman dungeon, here's what he said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be unto you. So he never lost that confidence. And I think that that confidence is very important for us. Absolutely. We need to have it clear. The Apostle Paul is a tremendous example. He's incarcerated. He's chained to somebody for years. And these are the things that he wrote. We're in isolation for a month or two months Let's take those principles and make them work. So if we sum up these foundation principles, Jonathan, what does it look like? We really do have the example before us to teach how to be beacons of Christian light in times like these. How seriously am I taking these principles? Folks, what about me? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. What about me? How am I doing with all of this? You know, there's a saying that says, tough times don't last, tough people do. How tough a Christian am I willing to be? Let's get practical. The early church and the Apostle Paul are great, but how do I handle isolation? Our team of volunteers are accomplishing amazing work every week as we release new audio, video, and web content, helping create the Christian Questions Multimedia Ministry. There's several ways you can get more involved in our not-for-profit mission. Click on Support CQ in our main menu on ChristianQuestions.com. 
The practical, hands-on, everyday event of social distancing and the fear for our economic future is a big deal. We have never experienced anything like this before, so we need to understand how to put things in order with all of our 21st century challenges being considered. As Christians, what should our lives look like? What should our lives look like? So we want to get some really practical things going here, Jonathan. Where, where, where do we start? Well, first, decide what information you will allow to influence your thinking and actions. Okay, now in deciding what information you'll allow, this is a tough thing. And we talked about this in our last Corona um, podcast uh, a few weeks ago. We need to understand how to get through the informa information. Vetting the onslaught of editorialized information we have before us 24 hours a day, seven days a week on social media and the news and everything else, there's too much overload of information and not enough understanding of how to hear it. We've got two short sound bites uh, from Stanford History Education Group talking about how to read. And you're like, well, what? How to read information on the web. The first one is focusing on something called vertical reading. We live in an era of information overabundance. This demands that we be more discerning. Instead of accepting information at face value, we should always ask this one important question. Who's behind the information? The Stanford History Education Group conducted a study with Stanford undergraduates, professors from four different universities, and professional fact checkers to determine the most effective methods for evaluating digital information. There were dramatic differences in how intelligent people looked at the web. Many smart undergrads and esteemed professors evaluated a site by reading vertically, staying on the site and reading it as if it were a printed document. Okay, so she's saying, okay, one way that a lot of people looked at things is they just read from top to bottom, just read down through the document. And you think, hey, what's wrong with that? In the age that we are in, with such a wide variety of sources of information, we need to look at that and say, I, I need to learn how to read a little bit differently. So we're going to suggest what Stanford History Education Group is suggesting, and that is something called lateral reading. Let's listen. Professional fact-checkers approach the web differently. They understood that on the web, what you see is often not what you get. The web is treacherous territory, and you can't let your eyes deceive you. Landing on an unfamiliar site, they didn't waste precious time engaged in close reading. Instead, they opened new tabs in their browser and read laterally. Read laterally. Spread out your sources to make sure that what you're digesting is actually digestible in terms of truth and not editorialized or half-truths or things that are just uh, ideas in, in the making. If you remember from our first coronavirus episode, number 1119, Does the Coronavirus Fit into God's Plan? I have a lifelong friend, Dr. Wendy Trina, and she, she was on the program, uh, her, her audio clips. She's the professor of microbiology at Marshall University. And we were talking and I asked her how she as a scientist sorts through all this mountain of information coming into us piling on every day and here's who was her suggestions yeah and you know and she's talking about uh lateral reading whether she doesn't use the word but this is what she's describing now of course the internet provides us a continuous stream of information on just about any topic how though do you choose who to listen to what to read and what to believe 
So there are several criteria to consider, and everyone can easily apply these to what you are reading or hearing on social media and be confident in knowing what information to trust. First, who is the speaker, writer, or author of the article, and are they credible? Find out if this person has some credentials. Are they an expert in their field with the appropriate educational background, knowledge, or experience? Now that's something you can often check. Secondly, determine whether the information being presented is backed up by reputable sources. Often an opinion piece is just that, whereas a real bona fide reporting or discussion of factual statements will be supported by real data that has been acquired through well-controlled scientific experiments. Determine whether the author is talking about actual research studies that have been published in scientific journals. Scientific journals comprise the primary literature, and this is where scientists and researchers publish the findings of their studies. Now, articles that are found in peer-reviewed publications are most reliable because this means that other scientists have vetted the study and the data contained therein. And she went on to yeah, give a little bit more information that we don't have time for. So we're going to go ahead and put it in the CQ Rewind show notes. And remember, our show notes are a written transcript of every scripture quoted during the program and much of the commentary. You can get it on our website, christianquestions.com or on our app, or you can very easily text CQ Rewind to number 22828, 22828, and get it emailed every week right to your inbox. All right, Julie, thanks for bringing Wendy back to us and helping us understand you've got to vet the information, folks. There's just too much. Don't get lost in all of this stuff. So the first thing, like Jonathan said before, what information will you allow to influence your thinking and actions? Jonathan, what's the second thing we need to look at? Well, second, learn to look at your new normal through the eyes of challenge and growth rather than the eyes of depression and loss. Okay, the eyes of challenge and growth rather than the eyes of depression and loss. Now, this is a lot easier said than done. And to approach this piece, we decided to uh, bring on with us uh, a fellow Christian. She is in her 80s. She lives alone since her husband died five years ago. She still runs a bookkeeping business. She still attends church every week and has all of her local family over for Sunday dinner nearly every week. So she cooks for about 18 or more people every Sunday when people are available. I happen to know this very, very factually and clearly and very closely because this is my mom. So, Mom, Anna, Anna Mae, welcome. Oh, thank you, Rick. Yeah, she's a listener, too, because, you know, she's my mom. <laughs> but anyway, Mom, it's, it's important because you're, you're one of those people in that category of high risk where whenever we talk, I always ask you, where are you going today, right? Right. So, so let's go back several weeks. How did you originally handle all of this social distancing? What, what, where were you in, in your own mind when all of this started? Well, it was interesting because <clears throat> when we first, you know, came across that and knew that that's something that we had to do, I kind of thought, ah, that might be interesting, might also be a little bit exciting. And so what I did is I canceled my usual routine. I stopped working Mondays in New Haven. I stopped working Tuesdays in Shelton. I stopped shopping on Fridays. I stopped making sauce and meatballs and cookies uh, for Sunday family lunch. And I could no longer attend church services in person, but had to do it, you know, on the computer with the video. And um, it was it was very different. 
very different. Okay, so so you started and you, you made the adjustments. You kind of dove in, it sounds like, okay, these are the things I need to do, so this is how I'm going to adjust. So what happens? What happens to you specifically after several weeks go by with this? Well, that was the point. It was okay for the first week or so. <laughs> and then after that, uh, it, uh, it, it was really very, it became more and more difficult. I had no clue uh, what impact this would have. And I found what happened to myself was my energy was low, my attitude was poor. I was super sensitive to any mistakes. I needed to push real hard to get anything done. I missed going out and working on location. And of course I missed family lunch on Sundays. And I was feeling depressed, I was feeling stressed. I got to the point where I didn't know what day it was. I had to check my cell phone to see what to see what day it was. And then, you know, I had situations where I couldn't find my glasses. They were in my pocket. And I wasted I wasted a lot of time and it became it became very difficult. You know, and, and your story, Mom, is very much the story of a lot of people. Um, you, you're, you're in that situation where you really feel the pressure of, I really got to be careful, take care of myself. And yet you're the type, well, first of all, Julie, Jonathan, and, and, and uh, Hannah, who's with us, will be coming on the next segment. You all know my mom, right? Yes. And, and, and Julie, you're, you're muted. Yeah, it's like a, she's like a ray of sunshine, only it's like a full-blown <laughs> window of sunshine. Yeah. But, but the point of all of this, though, is that my mom's not the type to get depressed. And when she tells me, you know, I'm feeling depressed, it was really a, a, it's like, wow, this is really, really, really hard. So, mom, you, you went through, originally, you got started, you, you, you worked on coping, you did the right things, you did the things you were supposed to, and then it starts to get to where you're stressed about things, and you're actually talking about being depressed. What happened? How did you, how did you deal with that piece? And this is the, really the important part, I think. Okay, well, the turning point for me was <clears throat> I got an email from one of my daughters, and she was mentioning the Apostle Paul, which we already talked about being under house arrest, and how uh, he had written so many scriptures that showed such an encouraging attitude. Well, I'm not under house arrest. I'm, I'm only quarantined. And um, so what I did is I read the book of Ephesians, and I read the book of Colossians, and I started to find some very, very um, wonderful, inspiring, and helpful scriptures. So I started writing them down. And I, I'd like to share, uh, I think there's, there's nine of them. Uh, Colossians 1, 9, and I use the New Living Translation. It just makes it a little bit easier to understand. It says, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. So this is something, something different than the earthly way of looking things. And, um, and then there was a cross-reference to Romans 12.2 that says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And boy, did that ring a bell in my mind. And all I could think of was, you cannot change the facts, but you can change the way you look at them. And then there was Colossians 1.11. 
We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his powers so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. And of course, under situations like this, we need endurance and we need patience. Then Ephesians 3.16, I pray from his glorious unlimited resources that he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. And Colossians 3.2, this is very helpful. Think about things of heaven, not things of earth. And then this is a very good theme text. I use it for work also. Colossians 3.23, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. In the workforce, especially if you're faced with a project that's boring uh, and difficult you know, to, to do your best, when you think that you're working for the Lord, you automatically improve the quality of work that you're doing. And whatever we have to do in this situation, if we do it for the Lord rather than for self, uh, that's very helpful. And Colossians 3.15, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Always be thankful is a very important attitude, a characteristic. I'm, I'm almost finished. Second Timothy <laughs> 1, 6 and 7, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline and that's i need that self-discipline stuck out because that's exactly what i needed in order to change my thought process and then john 14 27 i am leaving you with a gift peace of mind and heart so don't be troubled or afraid so i have these scriptures on a piece of paper and uh, I look at them, I read them, and they do inspire me, and they help me to stop thinking about myself, but rather putting things in the Lord's hands and realizing that we get strength and comfort and encouragement from Him. Okay, folks, now look, I couldn't interrupt her because she's my mom, okay? (laughs) (laughs) But I got to tell you, when you look at that, and when you hear that, and when you see that, what you get is... I've got a challenge. It's different than I've ever had before. I need to find a way. So I go to the book that gives me the inspiration to be able to quote. Mom, so well done. Thanks. Thanks so much. This is. Can I just say one other thing? Oh, sure. You're you're my mom. What am I going to (laughs) say? What I did then is I have all these scriptures. And so what I I started to do is I looked at the, the key points in each of those scriptures. And then I was shocked because I put them together and I actually have a sentence and it goes this way. This is all from the scriptures that I just read. Ask for spiritual wisdom and understanding and let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. So you will have all the endurance and patience you need. Be filled with joy, live in peace and always be thankful. This results in peace of mind and heart. You cannot change the facts, but you can change the way you look at them. Okay, folks. Well, thanks for listening to Christian Questions. (laughs) (laughs) So now we know where Rick gets it. Yeah, the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? (laughs) Mom, thanks so much. It's just such a powerful, powerful way of looking at things. And again, it's a decision to transform the difficulty into blessing. That's what the Apostle Paul did. That's what this segment is about, is about us 
can we do what the Apostle Paul did in our difficulty, in our isolation, in our challenge? So moms, stick around with us for the, uh, for the next few segments, uh, if you wouldn't mind. But folks, this is giving us a really practical basis to work from. We need to remember, those who need extra encouragement, more focus on them means less focus on myself. What other practical steps can we take to combat the loneliness, fear, and aimlessness of isolation? What's up, everybody? It's your CQ voiceover guy, reminding you we also want to talk to you before and after the podcast. Send us a message at ChristianQuestions.com for any and all feedback, or message us on our social media channels. Have a topic idea or just questions about what we're talking about? Reach out at ChristianQuestions.com. For a society that's always had places to go, people to see, and things to do at any given moment, the trauma of sudden and overwhelming isolation is a real shock to our system. All of this, as with any other challenge that comes to us in daily life, comes down to what I will decide to think and what I will decide to do. And just like my mom said in the last segment, it comes down to we are in a position that requires something different. So our response, therefore, has to be something different. Where do we get the inspiration? From the book. We get it from the book and try to find what to do with what we're seeing. So, so Julie, um, in, in terms of moving forward with this, you know, we've had the senior citizen who, who's stuck in isolation. Now we want to go a different direction in dealing with learning to deal with the isolation and so forth. Well, let's go right to the front lines. Hannah is our nurse practitioner friend, and she has worked in emergency departments and intensive care units. And she was our guest on episode 1116, How Do I Avoid Burnout? And boy, if our healthcare workers were burned out back when we did that episode, they are on fire right now. Um, and we have to recognize there's like three general categories of people. On one side, we've got the healthcare workers and the first responders. And on the opposite end, we have families that are, some are literally staring at their last loaf of bread. And in the middle, we've got this large portion of the population who started out scared, and now we're just bored and getting angry. So we wanted to bring Hannah on to try to give us something about, from a medical standpoint, what are we supposed to do with all this anxiety that we're feeling? Hannah, welcome. Great. Thanks for having me back on again. You know, Hi, it's, Hannah. it's really great to be here with you guys. So, um, yeah, you know, I just wanted to come on and talk a little bit about, you know, loneliness, anxiety, fear, stress, you know, all these things that we're having people deal with, you know, today. And we're seeing a lot of this affecting different people's lives, you know, to start just with loneliness, you know, loneliness is that emotional state when you feel a sadness and a perceived disconnection from others, you know, and the whole point is it's a perceived disconnection. You know, you can be in a room full of people and feel lonely, or you can be very isolated, but feel connected to those in your life and to the Lord as well. Um, as human beings, we're created in God's image and we naturally seek love, companionship, and connection with those around us. And even in the darkest hours of this pandemic, we really see acts of kindness that are surpassing the sickness and death that is facing us. Um, so I just like to remind everybody that even though we are apart, there is a solidarity among all of us as human beings that we are going through this together and we should draw strength from this. Okay, so, so you know, you're, you're putting the loneliness piece in place. 
and we're created in the image of God, and that's good. That's important. That helps us. We're seeing solidarity. We're seeing the helpfulness. And folks, that's another way to get beyond your own loneliness is to reach out to others and, and, and try to help them in theirs. The more you think about somebody else, the more you're able to cope with your own personal issues. So Hannah, from your perspective, what about direct comfort from Jesus as a Christian? I mean, you, you know, you, you're, you're the nurse practitioner, but you're the Christian nurse practitioner. Walk us down that road a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, Jesus left, you know, messages to his followers. He knew that, you know, loneliness was, you know, a, it's a very common human emotion, you know, even in our, you know, fallen state. And he gave some really specific comfort to his followers. He said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of you. And then he reinforced this again. He said, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So he is with those who call upon his name to bless and to comfort and to strengthen them, especially in times of trouble. He's promised he will never leave or forsake us, and he is faithful who has promised this. So even though he might be isolated at this time, you can also take time to develop your personal relationship with Christ through this time. Okay, and, and that, see, that's important because, again, folks, we can look at this as, oh, I'm stuck, or, oh, I'm free. You know, I'm free to work and to develop something that, you know, maybe got pushed aside because my life is too busy. So if you're in that, that, that place, think about it. And it's kind of what Trish said before. It's not what does God want from me. It's what does God want for me. And, and put yourself in that place. And, and you're right. Jesus, a relationship with Jesus has to be very personal. And what better way to develop a personal relationship with anybody than to spend time with them. And folks, a lot of us now have time. How are we investing that time? So, Hannah, outside of that personal development, what about what about our Christian responsibilities? You know, for sure, we, you know, we talked about that foundation principle of being a beacon in our lives for others, you know, that's come up several times in this program. Um, you know, and just you know, we need to realize that we are living in a very special age. You know, we have modern technology that the Apostle Paul didn't have when he was in prison. And really staying connected through online, through different media can definitely help us to feel more connected at this time. And the more that you connect, the more you will feel connected in turn. And the flip side of this is I would say that this is something that comes very natural to the younger generation. So I would really challenge the younger generation as well to reach out to those who maybe aren't as technologically savvy and help them connect in ways as well and build this connectivity during this time. All right. Now, see, I want to pause with that because that's huge. You know, so if you're younger and you're, you're listening in and you've got a grandparent maybe who is a little bit lonely, have you thought about reaching out to them and trying to walk them through how to FaceTime or how to do something else that can help them be a part of your life again. I mean, little things, folks, little things help us to, to grow through a difficult experience. Julie, go ahead. There's a lot of people, though, that aren't grandparents, and they don't have that, but they, they're still older. And yeah. Hannah, she recognized this. And can you just talk a little bit about what you did for our church group with well, the older people? Yeah, I mean, definitely there's brethren that I've, you know, you know, different members of our church that I've reached out to and, you know, just made sure that they're able to connect to our ecclesia meetings and that, you know, that they have, you know, you know, if they're lonely or isolated, that they have somebody that they can reach out to, you know, just in case they need groceries or, you know, those sorts of little things. So, you know, 
being connected and building connectivity helps everyone stay connected and really fights those feelings of loneliness. She's being modest. She made a chart of everyone who's over a certain age and she emailed it to all those that are under a certain age. And she said, pick someone. You assign yourself someone and you are responsible. You call them, find out if they need groceries. You do what you need to do and make sure that they're connected. So it, it was, it's pretty amazing. So we got to pick our people. <laughs> you know, so, so Hannah, one of the things that you, you, you had in, in your notes is acts of kindness. And, and what you're just, what, what Julie's describing is, is helping people realize an act of kindness that they can do. What else on acts of kindness? Well, you know, for sure, you know, we talked about that principle of focusing on others and, you know, just, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, these large acts, you know, it can just be very small things as well. You know, as a nurse practitioner, every time I go into work, I see, you know, that the community has made some handmade signs, you know, and posted them kind of outside of our hospital saying, you know, how much that we're, you know, respected and appreciated, you know, and I can't tell you how much these little things mean as well. You know, I usually slow down in my car before I pull into the parking lot and read, you know, the new signs that people have put up. And, you know, things like this give you energy and a boost, you know, that helps me to get through my shift. Um, and so it's small acts like this that we can do for each other that really help us to, you know, focus on each other and not feel so alone. So the idea of dealing with loneliness is there's lots that we can do if we begin to think outside of ourselves. You given us a lot to work with there. Okay, let's let's shift gears. You said there were two major f- focuses, first loneliness, now anxiety, fear, and stress. Walk us through how do we get going with the, dealing with those things. Yeah, so, you know, there are many reasons to feel anxious and stressed, you know, at this time. People are fearful. They're fearful of loss of jobs, loss of their home, loss of health, and loss of life as well. And, you know, this is a very universal feeling a lot of people are feeling right now. Um, and so, while we're imprisoned in our in our homes, it's hard to fight off these, you know, rising feelings of panic and despair. You know, um, Jesus said many times to his followers, fear not. And then that two words was followed usually by a blessing or a promise. So I would encourage everybody to go do a little homework, look up every time that Jesus said, fear not, and to read what was said after that. And that will give you definitely words of comfort. Okay. So that that's a great very practical, very focused assignment. Look up all the times Jesus said, fear not, and see what he says after. So what about what about our faith and, and developing faith in all of this? I mean, it sounds corny. Of course, you have to live a life of faith in these times, but more practically. So, you know, definitely, this is a stress test for our faith, for everyone, for their Christian development. You know, a lot of people suddenly find themselves at home becoming school teachers for their children, trying to work full time as well. And this can push even our greatest reserves of patience and resilience. And so God knows what we need and what trials we can withstand. And he is allowing all of us to be tested at this time. And we need to, al- and we need to know that he will give us the means to cope with the trials that come in our lives. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation is taking you, but such as is common to man, you will be given a way of escape, a way to endure it. So that's a promise, like you're saying. In the scriptures, you've got lots of these things. We've got promises. Okay, so faith, obviously. What about feelings? Jonathan mentioned, you know, the feelings of being uh, worried. Dealing with feelings. Go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, basically, it's okay to feel feelings at this time. And, you know, Honestly, I say if you can name the feeling, then you can address it. So, you know, are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling worried? You know, these are things we are in an unprecedented time in history, and we need to be careful to guard our minds against these emotions that tend to creep in, you know, 
the Lord said, cast all anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And, you know, one of the things about feelings that's so important is, you know, we, we've talked about anxiety and depression. And folks, in just a few weeks, we're going to be beginning, we're going to be doing a two-part series on anxiety and depression for Christians. And want to really implore you to, to, to stay with us for that two-part series, because we're going to get into the depths of what those things mean, and the many, many different ways we can learn to focus on them and wor- work through them so we can be faithful with those things in our lives. Jonathan, go ahead. Well, just like your mom, Anna May, I thought I was doing all right until everyone started saying, are you okay? What can I do to help you? And I'm like, what? what what's wrong with me? And, and I realized people were telling me I'm being anxious, I'm, I'm worrying, and they can read it and feel it. And I didn't realize I was going down that path. And once I did, I, I said, Lord, help me uh, to overcome this. And then acts of kindness were given to me and shown to me. I was the sole income earner of the family, and now there's no income. So now what? And so I put that burden on me. I'm like, wait, wait. And the Lord has provided, and things have worked out, and I'm just sitting back saying, only the Lord. But I got caught up in it. It's easy. It's easy to get caught up. Julie? Well, Hannah, how can we stop? Because the TV is bombarding us like 24 seven with all these things. I, how can you help but be anxious? Yeah. You know, and for sure, the you know advice that I'd give people this time is, you know, to limit your media exposure. You know, there is a fine line between staying informed and being sucked into, you know, a, a media that's riddled with messages of fear and anxiety and pushing these sorts of things. You know, social media especially has become more edgy and combustible during this time. You know, we're seeing innocuous comments turn into explosive tirades and, you know, the internet seems to be full of trolling and conspiracies and scams and everybody just seems to be mad and yelling at everyone else. Um, you know, a lot of people are doing this to create order in their lives. They're leveling judgments upon each other, convinced that they're right in their own eyes. You know, these are things that a Christian should never would never do in person and should never have any part of this sort of behavior online because we know that this divisiveness only adds to collective suffering. Wow. Okay, there you go. That's powerful words. This divisiveness only adds to collective suffering. All right, Hannah, I know we're throwing these questions at you rapid fire, but another question that's really important. You know, maybe you, you, you look at somebody else that you know who is coping with the stress and anxiety and say, wow, well, they seem to be doing pretty well. What's wrong with me? Uh, what about this idea of, of, of comparison and so forth? Yeah. You know, and for sure, I would say this is a time we shouldn't be making comparisons one with another. You know, some people will be tested more severely than others. You know, we see that, you know, I have some friends are taking super extra precautions and we shouldn't judge them as having lack of faith. And then I have some friends that are maybe very nonchalant about the whole situation. And so we shouldn't judge them as having a lack of wisdom. We should be each be exercising a spirit of prudence and of sound reasoning. Um, it says in the Bible that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. And that we know that each of us will have to give an account of ourselves to God. So, you know, I would encourage everyone, don't be judging others, just act in the most sound and prudent manner that you can at this time. And so look at my own responses and try to look at my own responses maturely. And if Jonathan's responses are different than mine, just give him the benefit of his own Christian maturity and respect and encourage. Really, I think that's kind of what you're saying. 
Yes. Yeah. For sure. G- give it. So give space for others to interpret their best way as we are trying to interpret our best way. Okay. So finally, Hannah, as our as our time here is winding down for for this segment, look, we're all in the midst of grief and sorrow and uncertainty. I know that you know. I think I've mentioned um, in, in our first podcast on this that my daughter, my daughter Emily, who is a a, a um, a nurse as well, an APRN, uh, contracted the virus. And uh, just recently, her husband got it. So, you know, we know what it's like to have it sitting there in your family, and they've got a 15-month-old. So, you know, they're, they're having that, that difficulty. And, you know, there's, there's, there's sorrow, there's uncertainty. Just kind of let, let, let's wrap this up a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, all of us are experiencing grief and sorrow at this time, whether it's, you know, a direct loss of family friends or if we're witnessing it as healthcare providers, or even if we're just at home watching it on the daily news and watching the death tolls rise, you know, there's this, um, you know, the, the old kind of wisdom that a death of thousands is a statistic, but the death of one is a tragedy. It's because the human mind can wrap itself around the death of one individual. But when we're talking about death tolls in the thousands, it's really beyond most people's comprehension of what that loss means. Um, The important thing, though, that we need to remember is that not one life that is lost is forgotten by God. You know, he has given promises that he will raise everyone in his kingdom you know, it says, are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God, and we are more precious than sparrows. So, you know, despite having all of this suffering and death toll around us, we need to remember that God remembers every single human who has ever lived, and he has given the promise of his wonderful plan for restoration of the whole human race. So what you're doing is saying, in spite of the fear and the anxiety and the loneliness and the anger and the unrest and the uncertainty, God's plan has every human being in the palm of his hand. Yeah. Fair enough? Fair. <laughs> you know, Phew, so... Thank goodness. <laughs> well, yeah, and it is, it is, thank goodness. And, you know, we need to pause and consider that, that piece of this thing. That's what God's plan is. And in our next segment, that's really where we're going to begin to head. So, Hannah, thanks so much for giving us this this rapid fire uh, viewpoint of just keeping yourselves not just afloat, but keeping yourselves moving forward in spite of all of the difficulties to be able to see your way through them, not around them, but through them. So, Hannah, stick around with us uh, for segment five as well. So, folks, listen, we've had so much input to help us get going. I guess it's time for us to get up and get going ourselves. There's one piece to the Christian coping puzzle that's not yet in place. What is God's plan in all of this? Did you know we have one-page companion Bible studies for our most recent podcast episodes? Listen to the episode, follow along with our CQ Rewind show notes, and for your own bite-sized Bible study or group study, check out the Bible study questions content. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Bible study in the main menu. Have some study time and then contact us with any additional questions or comments. Now let's continue the conversation. You know, coping skills are necessary. Scriptural examples are key. Being Christ-like is a must. But without a strong conviction about the bigness of God's overall plan and providence through this unique and difficult time, we are more likely to fall prey to doubt and anxiety. Here's the thing, folks, and you gotta be clear as crystal on this. God's plan has 
always existed. It's always existed. We're going to get into that in just a moment. We want to go first, though, to a soundbite that, to me, is it's, it's amazing. This is quoting from uh, Martin Luther back in the 1500s when they were dealing with a plague at that time. Listen to the advice that he gives at that time when they didn't have all of the, 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 the technological, medical knowledge and things, and they needed to deal literally with life and death in their neighborhoods. Listen to this. This, to me, is very inspiring. It was Martin Luther writing uh, on the plague of 1527. Here's what he said about the plague of 1527. You ought to think this way. Very well, by God's decree, the enemy, who's Satan, has sent a pestilence. So you see, Satan can send a pestilence, but it's by God's decree. It's only by the permission of God. Satan can't do anything to you, as we see in the book of Job, except that which God permits. And then Luther says, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall administer medicine and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others. Where I am deeded, there I'll go. But he says, if people in a city were to show themselves bold in faith when a neighbor's need so demands and cautious when no emergency exists, and if everyone would help ward off contagion as best he can, then the death toll would indeed be moderate. But if some are too panicky, and desert their neighbors in their plight. And on the other hand, if some are so foolish as to not take precautions, but aggravate the contagion, then the devil has a heyday and many more will die. This was 500 years ago. And to hear the wisdom of several things, of avoiding difficulty, of not being panicky, of being sound in mind, But the wisdom and the sacrificial Christian perspective of, please, help your neighbor in need. And, you know, there were many Christians, it is recorded, in that plague, who lost their lives by ministering to those who were not Christian, who tried to help others who were suffering because they were living that Christ-likeness. And this is such a sobering perspective to say, what a beautiful opportunity it can be for us to be these lights of the gospel, to be the ones who shine what Jesus is all about. And that's the point, folks. It's not so, so I can shine, or Hannah can shine, or Julie can shine, or Jonathan can shine, or my mom can shine. It's so the light of Christ shines through you. Think about that. You know, it said, by God's decree. And, and you know, the idea is by God's permission— God allows evil. So we're going to go through the power of God's plan. And we're going to call these points PowerPoints. Yes, there's a little play on words there. PowerPoints of God's plan. Okay, let's start with this. All of God's intelligent creation, be they spirit or human, have been endowed with the extraordinary gift of free will. Let me pause there for a second. The gift of free will is extraordinary. It is incredible 
that God decided to create the spirit beings with the ability to choose and human beings with that same ability to choose. He created us so that we could be like him. This is incredibly important in understanding how God's plan works. He gives this gift so his creation will be able to ultimately experience, feel, and live eternal harmony. See, that's where it's bringing us. It's bringing us to eternal harmony. Free choice, we will see in God's plan, brings eternal harmony because there can be no harmony without choice. To teach his created, to have eternal appreciation for this harmony, his plan calls for a period of intense learning. This learning period is what we're going through right now in our world today, and its lessons will echo for countless ages to come. So we've got uh, six power points of God's plan. So Julie, let's get started. What's the first of these points? This is really important because it's God had foresight and his plan was in place long before sin touched humanity. This gives me great comfort. Yeah, long before sin touched humanity, God's plan was already in place. How do we know that, Jonathan? Revelation 13, 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's before human ex humanity existed. The fact that this verse and others allude to a time in history before history was written tells us that God knew the pathway that a few of his spirit and all of his earthly creation would take. This shows us that God has foresight and uses it for good. This is important. See, God is not reactive. God is proactive. That is the God of the universe. He is proactive and puts things in place. So God's foresight and his plan has been in place long before sin touched humanity. Julie, what's our second power point? God uses his foresight for good, and it's ultimate good, and it's always based on a foundation of justice. Okay, based on a foundation of of justice. And simple scripture for that, Jonathan? Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. What we can do is we can go to the bank on the fact that God is just and God is righteous. God always does the next right thing. So, you got to think, okay, well, what's the next right thing? How do you determine the next right thing? It's determined by justice, okay? And how do we know that? Well, Julie, what's the third uh, PowerPoint of God's plan? While God's justice is exacting, his mercy is also encompassing. And that's because God's plan is built on applying both justice and mercy in righteousness. Now, look, we can do an entire podcast on that phrase, God's plan is built on applying both justice and mercy in righteousness. Because a lot of times you look at it and say, wait, how can you have mercy if you're being just? And there's a great scriptural answer for that. And that scriptural answer is in a very short verse. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Jonathan, it's a short verse, but we're going to cut it in half. For the wages of sin is death. Okay, stop there. The wages of sin is death. That says justice always requires its price. That's what God is saying. The wages of sin, what sin earns is death. Okay, but God provides a way through it. 
He doesn't provide a way to avoid it. He provides a way through it. And that is in the second half of Romans 6.23, which says, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You notice the free gift of God is eternal life. When? After death. Justice is satisfied and a gift is given. So mercy comes into play on top of perfect justice. And when you have a God that is so precise, to me, that's a, that's a point of great faith. That's a point of great peace and great relief to know that God has really got it. He's not reactive. He's got justice as his foundation, and he's got this plan that gives humanity opportunities. So how, how, how does all of this work? How can you have justice and mercy? By arranging for justice to be fulfilled. Now, Romans 6.23 gave us the hint toward that. Jonathan, what's the next verse? 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, and this is the Weymouth translation. For there is but one God and but one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus himself man, who gave himself as the redemption price for all, a fact testified to at its own appointed time. So we've got the answer. And the answer is Jesus, the mediator between God and men, the man who, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as the redemption price for all. You think about that, and that seems unbalanced. How does one man become a redemption price for everybody? Because that doesn't seem to be equal. It seems like it's out of balance. But it's because of the way God's plan is structured that you actually have the clarity of what that means. How can one man be the redemption price for all? Julie, what's the next PowerPoint of God's plan? God's plan provided an efficient and effective way to restore his creation to righteousness. An efficient and effective way to restore his creation. You know, and it's no surprise that God is efficient. And it's certainly no surprise that he is effective. God allowed the first man, Adam, to sin and the rest of us to inherit that sin. Okay, that's a pretty simple equation, right? Yes, okay, very simple. Therefore, only one man was required to ransom that original man. You one had for one. Right, it's, it's, so it's an actual perfect equal correspondence. The result was a changed inheritance for everyone else. And this is the key we have to understand. There's a changed inheritance. Now, we're going to go through Romans 5, 18 and 19. Listen carefully to how this verse is worded. This is one, I think, one of the most important verses in Scripture if you want to understand the mind of God. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Okay, let's pause on this verse just for a moment. So, Julie, Jonathan, Hannah, Mom, whomever, okay, you look at this verse, and you've got this equality thing going on. One transgression resulted in what for everybody? Death. Right. Everybody is born to death. That's what it says. That's what they inherit. So what is the verse saying is happening to fix that? Who does what? 
Where? How? Well, one was disobedient and one died for that man. And then so therefore, the man who was raised raises all of the ones that were dead in Adam. It's Adam and Christ. So it's perfectly just then. There's an equivalency. And there is nothing left out. See, understand the beauty of this, the, the efficiency of one for one, and everybody's included in Adam's sin, and everybody's included in Jesus' ransom. That's the beauty of God's plan. The lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, he had this in place long before. Folks, this is the best news. When Jesus talks about the gospel, this is what he's talking about. This is what he came for. This is the beauty of his plan unfolding before us. Let's go to point, PowerPoint of God's plan, PowerPoint number five. Jesus was that one man needed in God's plan. Through his ransom would come the restoration of all that had been lost. And that is why he told us to pray that famous prayer in Matthew 6, 9 to 10. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So folks, look, let's ask the simple question. Have we seen God's kingdom established on this earth where peace and perfection and harmony rule? Certainly not yet. No, not even remotely close. Why then would Jesus tell us to pray for something that wasn't going to happen? Makes wouldn't. Of course not. It makes no sense. So what Jesus is showing us is that you pray for God's kingdom to come. Now, do the true followers of Christ go to heaven? Yes, they do. And they're given something called the ministry of reconciliation so the world can be raised to life on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the answer to the free choice that we were given that went awry. And in the last 6,000 years, what we've seen is choice after choice after choice going down the wrong pathway. God allows it. Why does he allow it? So the experience of choice going wrong can be lasting for the rest of everybody's eternal life. So we can know exactly the consequences of those wrong choices. This is brilliance on the part of God. And this is incredible compliance on the part of Jesus. And it's a gift for us. What's our final PowerPoint of God's plan, Julie? The Number results six. of this age of sin and death will bring worldwide peace, harmony, and health under God's hand. Okay. Uh, great prophecy, very simple prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. You see what the prophecy says? Do you think for one second that God gave Daniel those words because he was just wanting to cheer people up? He gave them those words because they were a picture of what was to come, God's kingdom. So when we look at this pandemic and we look at the panic and we look at the fear and we look at the anxiety and we look at the depression and we look at the isolation and we look at the wondering of what's going to happen, please understand, God's got this all in the palm of his hand and all for the good 
of humanity. And that's why it says, final verse in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Do you believe it? It's written in the book. Don't allow yourself to fall prey to the fear, to the anxiety, to the frustration, but instead allow yourself to begin to see that we've given, we've talked about lots of tools for helping us in the everyday isolation and difficulty and panic and, and so forth, but there's more. There's the bigness of God's plan that can be that ultimate driving force that says, not only can I be a light to, to shed, to, to, to bring kindness and help to others, but I can be a light to give them hope for eternity. Folks, that's our mission in the middle of a pandemic like this. Let's not forget to be kind, wonderful human beings one to another. And let's not forget to shine the light of God's plan as well. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us. Mom, thanks so much. You guys are awesome. We really, really appreciated your, your help and your, your uh, influence here. Folks, it's up to you. What are you going to do? Think about it. Listen, we do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions and iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now, coming up next week, we'll be talking about, this is interesting, can our sins ever produce blessings? Talk to you next week.